Welcome to episode two of In the Arena, the Jonathan Mosen story. I'm Glenn Gordon. What was it that allowed you to, you know, to move on to the next radio step after that? Um, well, yeah, I went, I went through a really bad um, period um, where I um, did um, attempt to take my life when I was about 20, I think. And that was a real turning point for me because the fact that I wasn't successful meant that I had to face the consequences. Um, I had to face up to my parents and um, my then fiance um, and friends. And so it was all pretty kind of awful. And it made me realize what a selfish idiot I had been um, and and how much hurt I could potentially have caused. And I've actually uh, been on the receiving end as well of people that have been you know, re- quite close to me who have, su- who have suicided. Uh, and it's an awful thing. It's an awful thing to do to the people that you leave behind. It really is. So don't do it. Um, but but at the time, you're probably not thinking about them. No. No, you're not. And you actually, when you get to that, when you get into that space, you think you're doing the world a favor. Uh, you, 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 know, you genuinely think the world is better off. And that, that's never the case. And th- the one thing I would say is that hopefully – we are much more willing to talk about these things now than we were before and that there are places that you can reach out to to just talk to someone and get some help. I remember being in hospital after that and there was this wonderful nurse and I often wonder what what happened to her and she stayed on after her shift just to talk and just having the stranger sitting on the edge of my hospital bed, willing to listen to my sort of just past teenage angst and not pass judgment, but really understand, it was amazing. Uh, and and I will never forget the the gift that she gave, and and the gift that she gave was her time and her understanding and uh, and and holding my hand, and it was it was just really really special. So. When I started to come out of that, and I, I, re- I was at a crossroads at that point, I knew that I went through a phase where I was a kind of person, you know, when I set up the radio station at the School for the Blind and did all these things, I was the person who was taking control. Somehow along the way, I'd formed a view that I had lost control, and I knew that I needed to gain it again. And so at just about that time, we had the Commonwealth Games in Auckland in New Zealand, and it's kind of like a mini version of the Olympics, but it's just four members of the British Commonwealth, of which New Zealand is still part. And there was this new radio station that had come on, and it was uh, on the air from six in the morning until midnight. So I called them up, you know, trying to get some of that old spark back, and I said, mates, it is ridiculous when Auckland is this jumping city going 24-7 right now because of these games and so many tourists from all around the world here that you're closing down at midnight. If you had somebody doing midnight till six, you could sell ads in that time slot. You could really be a happening thing and you're a new station and you can't afford to be off the air. 
And I said, I tell you what I'll do, since it's you. <laughs> I, You're the doctor of spin, <laughs> yeah. my friend. I will uh, agree to do midnight till six, seven days a week for two weeks of the uh, Commonwealth Games. And I'll do it for free. And all I ask is that if you like what I do, when a slot comes up during the day, you know, that you think I might be suitable for, you consider it. And so they heard my tape and they said, oh, yeah, okay, why not? I mean, what have we got to lose? It would be dead air anyway. Can you be any worse than dead air? And I said, well, I guess we'll have to see. <laughs> and so I did this show and it was crazy. Just just completely unleashed all this pent up energy. I had people doing really crazy things. Like I remember you know, calling a taxi driver on the mobile phone and getting them to drive under the studio window and honk and just really crazy, crazy <laughs> stuff would ring up rival radio stations. And, oh, my God, it was just madness, absolute madness. No one from management was really listening after the first sort of couple of hours when, yeah. So so I was just crazy. So that was in the January. And by March of that same year, I had got the what we call the breakfast show and what Americans call morning drive. So I was I was on my way. I was doing... 6 a.m. till, till uh, 10 on, on the radio on that station. Good morning. Eight minutes past six on this Monday morning, but don't worry, it could be worse. This is David Lee Roth, formerly a recording engineer. He decided to try and do some singing. And uh, we are the, 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 the thankful beneficiaries. 20 minutes past six, Hurricane Smith. And babe, what would you say? I sometimes wonder. You're with Counties Radio, 1548 on this Monday morning, May the 7th. First day of the school holidays. I knew I'd lose some perks when I started working, and one of them is the holidays. And uh, a lot of my friends are on holiday. My own fiancé is on holiday, and here I am working. But it's work I love, so that's all right. Looking at what we've got coming up for you in the program, ahead of 7 o'clock we have Michael Curtin, clinical psychologist, who's doing a series on stress for us this week and uh, over the next uh, few weeks, I would imagine. So Michael Curtin is up at around about 5 to 7, talking on stress. After 7 o'clock, Tasha Tolson joins us with all kinds of information that you need to get to work safely with traffic, weather, community news, and we'll also look at today in history, community notices, and many more things as well. At 10 to 8, we'll be joined by Colin Mosen, looking at the sports situation over the weekend in the county's area, and a lot more besides, so make sure that you stay with us. There's a lot in the news to talk about. Of course, this morning we've heard over the news wires about the tragic train crash in Sydney, at least six people are feared to have died and uh, more trapped in the wreckage. And we'll keep you up to date with the independent radio news team as information on that becomes more available. But on a lighter note, well, there are some extremely flushed-looking cheeks this morning at the ARC after it was revealed that despite passing bylaws and mounting major advertising campaigns encouraging dual-flush toilets, 75 ordinary full-flush toilets have been installed in the new ARC self-gratification centre. This instance of the ARC being caught with their pants down follows a chain of stories which has made the ARC unpopular with many Aucklanders. An investigation is being carried out to determine who's to blame for the error, but at this stage, ARC officials have absolutely nothing to go on. Never mind, in a couple of weeks it'll all be water under the bridge or perhaps in the Manuko. We're heading for a high of 19 degrees. Not too bad a day outside today. This is Andy Williams. If you hear this song... It just goes to show that it, it's often darkest right before the dawn, you see. Yes, it does happen over and over again. And I, I would never, I'm sure that you did not think at the time, you probably did not think that through to its logical conclusion, that you would call this radio station, work overnights, and then get morning drive. 
Well, to be honest, that's what I was hoping. I, I was at least hoping for for a permanent slot. I I did think I was okay at the radio stuff. You know, I thought I thought I I, I could do a good job, and that what I really needed was somebody to give me a chance, and that's what radio enterprise was about and that's why i thought okay well let's just um let's just continue in in this direction and try and make some more stuff happen and i i guess the lesson that i learned from that is whenever possible try and make things happen you you can't just wait for opportunity to knock encourage opportunity to come to you and i've been very lucky that i've been able to um initiate those sorts of things i suppose even a bit earlier than that I was one of the few kids uh, I can remember in my group who actually had an after-school job because somebody told me that there was an ad in the paper at a skating rink for a DJ. And I thought, well, that would be quite interesting. So I called the guy up and this I was just turned 16. And this was the first real time I had to deal with the whole issue of do you disclose your blindness or do you not? And I thought, well, you know, if I if I turn up without telling him that, that that I'm a blind person, it could kind of be embarrassing when I get there. So I called up and I said, I'm interested in the DJ job. And um, he said, okay, well, come during a session and we'll put you on for 20 minutes and we'll see what you can do and how the customers respond to you. I said, yeah, that sounds good. And I I just want to let you know that I'm a blind person. And uh, I think a skating session was on when I called and there was music on in the background. He said, you're a what? <laughs> he, he, he later told me he thought I said that I was a bright person. And he thought, who is this pretentious prick? You know? <laughs> well, uh, I said, I'm blind. I can't see. And he paused and he said, well, do you have a stick or what? <laughs> I said, yeah, I do actually. Yeah. So I came along and walked up to the DJ box and there were a couple of turntables, but the most fascinating thing for me, you know, in a, in a, in a little mixing desk thing, the fascinating thing for me about that job was the lighting because I have no light perception and there was this massive light board in front of me and, you know, you have to turn on the mirror ball and do, do different things like that. And I had no concept of this, but I got up and I did my 20-minute stint trying to rev up the crowd and encouraging people to buy food from the from the shop and and then they gave me the job and then within about 6 months to a year I became head of the DJ staff which was ridiculous I mean at the at the roller yeah, rink I mean I was only oh. 16 or 17 I think when I and and everybody that I was supervising was older than me but that was really, really cool. And I learned to do the lighting by rote. So if you had a slow song, then this combination of switches works for slow songs. And we did some pretty cool initiatives. We we did a 24-hour skate-a-thon and all sorts of things. But it was great. I, and, you know, it was, it was money to spend, but it was also kind of helping me on my trajectory. Where are you going to rage tonight? If you're not going to Milliways, the new underage rage at Skateways Papakura, you won't be having as good a time as those who are joining us for our unique combination of all types of music to rage to. Reggae, heavy metal, top 40, you'll hear it all. Plus, you can be a winner in lucky spot prizes and album giveaways. Milliways, the new underage rage at Skateways O'Shaughnessy Street Papakura tonight. Phone the Skateways hotline for more details on 2999-090. Milliways. You'll be enraged if you don't make it. Was that the first time you'd supervised people? Yes, it would have been. I suppose 
I have often found myself just in groups leading things, but in an official capacity, yes, that was the first time I had supervised people. Um, and, and I was aware of the challenges because they were older than me and I was, I was really a kid. But the, the supervision really mainly involved um, setting up the rosters and making sure that there was always somebody who could do a shift. And um, sometimes I would do a little bit of quality control and things like that. But largely it was kind of, I, was, I would call it more management than leadership, if you see the distinction. I do. There are so many blind people who have a fascination with telephones, and some were phone freaks, and some it was a little more casual. Do, do you fit into that category at all, <laughs> or did you when you were young? Yes. <laughs> yes. I really, really enjoyed reading the book Exploding the Phone. I just felt, oh my goodness, there's a whole bunch of kindred spirits half a world away. I was mad about the telephone, and I couldn't stop playing with it. I, one of my earliest memories was going with one of my sisters to this tiny rural town where they still had this thing where you'd pick up the phone and crank the handle to get the operator. And uh, I was cranking away there, and the operator was getting really annoyed with me. And in the end, in the, end the operator intervened and told my uh, sister to get me under control. But... I was fascinated by the different exchanges and the phone systems were emerging in the 1970s. So when I first started being aware of the phone, really, we had these old crossbar exchanges. And the thing about those, I don't know whether they sounded the same in the States, but the crossbar exchanges had this really distinctive kind of sound that you could sometimes hear coming across phone calls. And in fact, you may have heard that when we played the little snippet of my call-in show, there's, you can hear these exchanges making that noise. Uh, actually, maybe they were step-by-step exchanges. I think they yeah. were step-by-step. I was thinking those are what made yes, noise, because yes. I, I remember that distinctly from my yes. youth. So step-by-step was first, and then the crossbars, I think, came next. And we had a very small area of, of free dialing. Where we were and where the School for the Blind was when I was growing up was in a place called Manurewa, which is now very urban, but it was quite rural back then. And so you could only call within your little town, and then gradually they increased the range, and then you could make calls around the country and ultimately around the world without involving an operator. And I remember my uncle Albie and Auntie Sharon, they happened to live in a place where they got international dialing way before us. They were one of the first in Auckland to get this for some reason. And one day we had a party at their house, and I remember slipping away, and I had this book that had been brailed by the transcription service at the Foundation for the Blind, and it contained all the international country codes. And so I took this book. It was a really nice, crisp, thermoformed book, and I took it in, and I sat by the phone and I just started dialing these random numbers. I think one of the first I dialed was just some number in Houston or something because, you know, I was fascinated by space and I thought, well, here we go. So I knew that Houston was 713, I believe it was. And I would, uh, I just caught up and dialed a random number to talk to someone in Houston. And then I got more adventurous and I would call people in Japan or Italy or whatever, you know, languages I didn't speak. 
And I was fascinated by all the different ringtones and how different they sounded. And I didn't care what time it was when I was calling. Now, you didn't mention being a phone freak. Does this mean your family was unbeknownst to them paying for yeah, this? Yeah, so then I got pinged a few weeks later when my un- uncle Albie and Auntie Sharon got quite a significant phone bill. And I don't know how they could possibly have imagined that, that I was the one they should bust about this. <laughs> but uh, but they did. So I <laughs> I was... In in that case, you weren't thinking multiple steps. No, ahead. I was not. No, I was not. You see, and and and, and it isn't the only time. Um, so I was badly pinged for that. But I also used to find little numbers that you could call to get into test modes and make the phones beep or make the phones ring back and different things like that. And I also found out that in New Zealand we had a very interesting phone system. And I understand the story is that we got war surplus phones back from the Second World War that had been somehow mislabeled or something, and we just adapted our telephone system to match. So in most parts of the world, when you dial the number nine on a rotary phone, it's nine pulses, or one, it's one pulse. But in New Zealand, it was reversed. So if you dial the number one, it's nine pulses. And so all of our dials were the wrong, yeah, were the other way around. It was kind of interesting. But I worked out that I could go to phone boxes and bypass having to pay and having to put the coins in the slot by tapping out the pulses on the little switch hook thing that the phone hangs on. And you had to be really quick. You had to have really quick reflexes to go with the little switch hook thing. But you could, well, I could do it. And I was able to say to kids at the School for the Blind, hey, I know how I can give you a free call home to your parents. Watch this, you know. (laughs) And so, (laughs) and also, I was fascinated by answer phones. And there was one, I just dial numbers at random and there was one electrician place who who operated an answer phone and their phone number was 69999 and I just dialed it because I wondered who had the sort of top end of our number range and got this answer phone and I don't know how I worked it out I really don't but I worked out that by whistling a certain tone I could make the answer phone spew back all the messages that were waiting and so I was just fascinated. I, I'd just call in and whistle at this thing and play it back. And I would some, sometimes leave crazy messages just to hear them being played back to myself. And one day I was playing with the phone and my dad walked in slightly frustrated with me for not doing something I was supposed to be doing. And he yelled at me and he said, Jonathan, what are you doing on the phone again? Well, the next time I did it, they were laying in wait because they wanted to know this was long before caller ID, but they wanted to know who was this person who was messing with their answer phone. I'm sure. And so I started my whistling and things, and suddenly I heard this really scary voice on the other end going, Jonathan, should you be playing with the telephone like that? And boy, I dropped that phone like it was a bunch of hot coals, man, and I ran out of the room. But the scary thing is I had a tape recorder that then broke. And my parents said, oh, we're going to take it into the Crosby's Electrical, which was the name of this place. I take it anywhere but there. I was just scared they were going to bust me when they knew what my name was. (laughs) One of the other really cool things in the 1980s, 
they used to have these uh, ski report lines that radio stations would run because New Zealand has a lot of beautiful mountains and skiing things and people come here in July and August when it's well, summer over there. So we, they had these ski reports and they were very professionally produced. They were recorded in a studio and put on an answer phone tape. And I often wondered, how are they doing that? It turns out that they were doing it with a special kind of answer machine that used two standard cassettes. So they'd record in the studio on a cassette. And um, I managed to get a beeper for one of these answer phones. And I had a good friend who sadly died a couple of years ago named Marcel. He was right at the avant-garde, at the forefront of digital sampling. He had this thing called an insonic mirage, and he would record all these little crazy musical samples onto floppy disk and, and make his own electronic music. He was like the kind of a the, the Jean-Michel Jarre of the New Zealand blind community. So I had this idea uh, of pushing this little bleeper that we managed to find on one of these ski report lines and replacing the ski report with some of his cool music. And that actually worked. And so for, for quite some time, we would periodically hijack the ski report line and put Marcel's cool music on instead, which I think was a far better use of it. The problem was you couldn't say where to buy no, his music that's right. for I fear mean... of getting caught. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, my goodness, we did we did terrible things. I, I think one of the craziest things I ever did, I had a, a girlfriend at the time when I was about 14, I think, who was three years older than me. When you're 14 and your girlfriend's 17, that's actually a really big age difference. Yes. You know, it is at that at that stage. And she was getting annoyed with me, and who can blame her? And she told me it was time I grew up. And so I thought, well, fair, fair comment, really. But if I'm going to grow up, I really want to do one more crazy thing before I have to grow up. So I knew a lot of the secret numbers for radio stations. You know, a lot of radio stations, as you will know, have a hotline number where if this line rings, you answer it because it's the boss or, or something like that. It's some sort of emergency. And I knew a lot of these hotline numbers just by playing with the phone because normally phone numbers go in a hunt group with radio stations. If you go low enough in the hunt group, you'll find the hotline. So... I knew the technician for this radio station, and I could do a pretty good impersonation of him. And I also liked the little tape that came on on this radio station when there was an activity. So usually there was this sort of silence detector. And if there was more than, say, 30 seconds of silence, this little emergency tape would kick in from the transmitter to say, we apologize for the break in transmission. And it would play really good tunes. Like I remember it had John Denver's grandma's feather bed on it which i thought was a particularly fun song so yes. in the middle of the night when the radio station only had one person there that was the person hosting the show and doing his own operating i called the hotline and i did this really good impersonation of the technician and i said i'm sorry to do this to you but we've got an emergency at the transmitter and since it's the middle of the night we think now's the best time to handle it can you just stop broadcasting for a while and he said, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. So he made this little announcement, and there was the silence, and then the tape kicked in. So I listened to this tape for a while, and I thought, this is a good tape. And then I thought, I guess, uh, I guess I'd better tell him to get back on. So I called the hotline again, and I said, okay, we've we're finished our maintenance now, in the technician's voice. You can go back on the air. And he said, well, what do I do to stop the tape? And I thought, oh, my God, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> so I said, uh, I think if you just play some music, it'll automatically sense that you're back and the tape will stop. And luckily for me, it did. And I never did get busted for that. 
that wasn't the radio station you subsequently worked at, and you didn't work with that engineer. I, I, right? He was one of the engineers that set Radio Enterprise up, but I, I didn't have the guts to tell him. You went to a, a school for the blind, but then you said you transitioned to your regular high school. Is that right? Yes. In New Zealand, we have a thing called intermediate schools, which is when you are about 11 and 12, you stay there for a couple of years, and then you go on to high school. So when I went mainstream, or sort of mainstream, it was my intermediate school. It's where the kids for the blind went. They kind of had a special facility for the blind kids at that intermediate and that high school, but it would have been my local anyway because of where my parents lived. And once you got to that age, some blind kids did have the option to go back home to their local school, and some did exercise that. So- sounds very much like the States when I, was, when I was growing up. So was this the first time you had sighted friends? I'm assuming you had friends. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did actually. Well... I had some sighted friends growing up as a kid because I was kind of pretty active in my neighborhood. It's amazing to think about it now, but I did used to wander around the neighborhood without a cane. I would just walk around places and I did too. And I didn't feel at all shaky on my feet. No, it's amazing, isn't it? um, It's it's quite, kids can be very bold about that sort of thing. So I did have some sighted friends growing up, but certainly being in a class with a lot of sighted people, and they were much larger classes, that was a very different sort of thing. And it was interesting because I never really knew where I fit, if you will. In those days, they used to group kids in terms of their academic intelligence. I was in the A stream, which meant that I was sort of the considered part of the top academic group in my school. And until that time, I didn't really know where I stacked up. It was challenging being in that mainstream environment, but I enjoyed it. This question comes from my own experience, so it's probably more about me than about you. Did you find it all like you wanted to be the super blind guy? Like you want you wanted everyone to feel comfortable being around you and being blind, but to some degree, you might be tainted by being too much associated with other blind people. I got the signal a lot from the resource teachers that somehow if you hung around with other blind kids, you weren't fully embracing the mainstream experience. But I always pushed back. It's not that I didn't have sighted friends. It's just that a lot of the blind people that were also going to that school were kids that I had grown up with from a from an early age, but they were more into the things that I was in. They were they were into radio and I don't know and music and different things like that. And a lot of the sighted kids were not. They were reading comics and doing visual things that just didn't appeal to me. And because of all the radio stuff and some of the music things that I had been doing. I was already very prominent, which really did take its toll sometimes. People resented my prominence, and I can sort of understand that in a way. I mean, when there is this one kid that is so well-known, inevitably there's going to be some backlash from other kids who aren't so well-known. Sometimes that did cause me 
trouble, both with teachers who really resented all the focus that appeared to be on me and also other kids who sort of were like, well, what has he got that I ain't got? Right. But in, in, in terms of blindness, it, it, it really, again, sounds like you were pretty comfortable in your skin. Yeah. I mean, as comfortable yeah. as a kid at that age can be. Yes. I don't think I'm the kind of person that's easily led if I don't genuinely believe in what I'm doing. So when these teachers would say, you guys need to stop sort of segregating yourselves as a blind group and get out there and play with other sighted kids, I would say, well, you know, sighted kids aren't superior to blind kids. These are my friends. These are the people I want to spend my time with. And when it's lunchtime and playtime, that's my right. That's why they didn't like me very much. <laughs> Who was your first girlfriend? My first serious girlfriend um, uh, was when I was a teenager. And uh, I we got together when I was oh, 13 and she was 16 or whatever it was. We stayed together for about two and a half years. Which it's a long time again, at that age. It is a long time. She put up with me. But we did a lot of things together. We were part of a theater group that was called Theater Unlimited for people with disabilities. And I loved that thing. I, I played Algernon a little bit later in The Importance of Being Earnest, did a few other things as well. And I loved the whole acting thing and getting on stage. And the thing about the skating rink and that was it's different from radio. Internet radio is like like the skating rink and and this too, in that you get an instant response. You can instantly tell how your audience is responding to you. With internet radio, of course, you can see whether people are tuning in or out or whether they're, they're tweeting or emailing in. Radio is was not quite that immediate. You might get some phone calls depending on the format you were doing better, but it was, it was different. So I loved the theater. We were also involved in a choir. I sang... Um, alto and then eventually my voice broke there were a number of us students who were really keen about the choir thing but it was only a treble choir so when a bunch of us started having a bit of trouble with that uh, they formed a new a new group to accommodate us so that was that was great um, but there was a there was a lot of a lot of religion in that uh, in that choir as well but i i know i'm going off the off your question are you about talking about reli religiosity about being in the choir or literally religion literally religion i know that in the us for a long time there's been you know this tension about religion in schools certainly at the school for the blind and its associated satellites uh, in the 70s and early 80s that wasn't really a consideration so my parents were never particularly religious they didn't discourage me from exploring it at all but they weren't religious and uh, i remember once we had one of the people from one of the religions knocking at the door and my dad answered um he he was a pretty mild-mannered kind of guy um but i remember he he sent this guy away with a flea in his ear and saying you know i I don't have time for religion because what purpose could God possibly have in making my two sons blind? Um, so that had obviously really affected him. But we got a lot of it at the at the School for the Blind. Some very good music, by the way, associated with uh, 
with with Christian things. But I kind of fell into a lot of religious things. I started going to church voluntarily until I became a diehard atheist a bit later. <laughs> there are many other religion questions I could ask, but I'm wondering if this is uh this is these are waters not worth trotting in. Well, you know, I got asked a couple of years ago by a really intelligent woman who was having a crisis of faith if I would come on her podcast and talk to her about my own deconversion as it were and how one can live a good life without God in it. And I did that and I then also put the recordings on the Blindside podcast. And in New Zealand we've had a succession of atheist prime ministers and so everybody sort of goes, you know, well, another so one atheist, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in America, no. So it's amazing how much hate I got from people who profess that God is love and they're loving people um, just because I don't believe in their particular brand of deity. But no, th this is a really important part of me. It's a journey I took. It's something I considered long and hard. And it's something I still consider. I mean, if if there was some overwhelming, and, and no emails, please. If there was some overwhelming uh, evidence that came along tomorrow that made me change my mind, I would change my mind, you know. I, but But right now I don't see it. I'm proud of the fact that I just haven't swallowed a worldview or a doctrine that I've really thought about it carefully and come to my own view. So your parents weren't religious, yet yet you started going to church voluntarily. Was, was yeah, it, was it peer pressure at that point, or what motivated you? Part of it might have been peer pressure, sort of fitting in, especially given all the religious stuff that we were singing in the choir. I guess I was looking for some semblance of order, but no, I think it was more, it was probably more about fitting in. Yeah. And and the music we were doing was really good. And uh, we actually eventually formed a quartet. Sometimes it was a quintet. And we would go out and sing at places like this. And when I was a little bit uh, older, when I was about um, 17 or 18, I had a friend who got very ill and a few other things happened in my life. Like I met Amanda, my first wife. And so there, there are various things coming to the boil, and it just made me think about whether there really was this God person out there monitoring everything. And I kind of thought, well, if there is this God person monitoring everything, he's not actually doing a particularly good job given the state of everything. So what, what's this about? And I started thinking about it, and so I kind of felt like a mini version of Yoko Ono, you know, because uh, I had to say – so part of the constitution of this quintet that we were a part of was that we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And I remember going to a meeting of this a rehearsal of this quintet and saying, look, I can't do this anymore. I don't believe it. I've been thinking about this a lot. It's not an easy decision, and I'm sorry to, to cause this, but I can't do it. I can't sing the stuff that I don't believe in and that I actually think is harmful. So I broke up the quintet. So this this all happened very fast. You you went to church, you joined the quintet or quartet, you started thinking about it and then you sort of decided this is this is not for me all within a short time span. 
Well, the story happened fast because, you know, we can't be here forever. But no, this I think I started going to church when I was about 10 or 11 or 12. And then when I finally reached the point where I had this crisis of faith, I would have been almost 19. So there was there was quite a gap there. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was for some reason thinking you started when you were in a, when uh, middle school or high school. One of the other things that really influenced my religiosity was um, also that there was this radio station called Radio Rima that had come on. It was a, a Christian radio station. It was pretty cool, you know. So I, I was listening to a lot of stuff. James Dobson. I don't know whether Adventures in Odyssey was on by then or not, but certainly Unshackled was. Oh, I, I remember loved. Unshackled. Yes. And that cool dramatic organ music. I loved all that. It was a big part of my life. And then I remember first starting to worry about this, you know, whether I really was on the right path for me. And um, when I first started questioning this stuff, I sort of was worried for a while about being struck down or something for having heretical thoughts. But I think that my atheism is a really important part of any moderate success I might have had in my life because it's always struck me as this enormous dichotomy that a lot of right-wing people, particularly in the States, who preach self-reliance and self-responsibility then hand over their autonomy to this deity, right? I mean, you can't have it both ways. Either you're truly self-responsible and you're fully in control of what happens to you or you're not. Whether it's the government or whether it's God, I don't think there's any difference if you surrender your autonomy to someone or something. So I am proud of the fact that I don't rely on some being to bail me out. I don't think that talking to some being or deity is going to solve my troubles. I'm the person who could do that. I think you and I view these things uh, fairly similarly. Uh, one of my uncles uh, died of a prolonged cancer, and he was extremely religious. And that brought him so much comfort in a very uncertain time. And 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 I don't know if I had been in his position without that. Uh, if, you know, if, if I would have been as comfortable. Obviously, you can't take these things on just because it's convenient. But I, but I do understand in some ways the appeal. I do now as well. When I became an atheist, I approached it initially with the zeal of sort of like a reformed smoker or something and the arrogance of a of a teenage kid. So I was like, I'm an atheist. You should be an atheist too. Why aren't you an atheist? You are dumb because you're not an atheist. <laughs> and now... I realize that while I will stand up and um, speak out against what I believe to be an imposition of religion on others in inappropriate places, if religion brings someone a sense of comfort or purpose, then that's fantastic. And it's not my business to question it. I don't think it's my place to say that everybody should be an atheist, and it's not my place to say that everybody who believes in a God is misinformed. It just doesn't work for me right now. And I like to think that we could sort of coexist in that regard. The difficulty is, of course, that by its very nature, religious people, certainly Christians, believe that if you don't accept their brand of God as your Lord and Savior, then you are going to burn in eternal 
hell and, and damnation, that's a pretty horrible thing to contemplate, you know, constantly burning and excruciating pain for eternity, which is, in my view, a pretty sad thing to say about people who don't share the same beliefs as you. So it's hard to have a conversation about this when you're starting from a religion who thinks that. It is interesting to me the number of people who are blind who are also extremely religious. And I would have thought at some level it would be just the opposite. Yeah, but I think that that's because if people have experienced hardship in their life, they're comforted by the fact that there might be something better in another life. And so that's why you see a lot of oppressed people adopting religion because their current existence is so subpar that they're wanting something better to look forward to. And because I don't believe that I have any life other than the one that's rapidly ebbing away. As we I, talk. Yeah, as we speak. I want to make the most of it and do the best I can. You know, the, the old saying about do, do all the good you can for all the people you can. I believe it's my mission. And, and if, if there's anything that describes my life philosophy, it's John Lennon's Imagine. That is just such a perfect description of what I believe. You talked briefly about doing theater. And as someone who's never seen, even if I could get all the voice inflections right and be a very convincing actor, I think I would be really concerned about being completely ignorant about what the facial expressions should be and how someone should look and looking right. Did you get coaching? Did you care? Yes, I did. And yes, I did. That was the cool thing about this theater. So it was specifically for people with disabilities. And we had people with a range of disabilities, uh, blindness, deafness, people in wheelchairs. We had some people with speech impediments, quite significant speech impairments, doing some things as well. So it was very inclusive. But the nice thing about it was that we did exactly that. So special care was taken with the blind actors to ensure that they got coaching and how to look, essentially. And I actually found that a very useful life skill because I think sometimes those of us who've been born blind don't give a lot of thought to our facial expressions. And sometimes our, our facial expressions as blind people can be very transparent because we're not used to masking them and we give a lot of the game away. So I really did benefit in that regard from that experience. My parents were very, very clear that they wanted to keep me from displaying blindisms, as they called it. And blindisms were either putting your fingers in your eye or rocking or uh, moving in a way that wasn't publicly acceptable. And obviously, they, you know, they offered this up uh, with the best of intentions. Uh, the, the thing that I realize is I think it impacted my lack of ability to dance or have rhythm or just sort of be free with my body. And I'm curious yeah, if well, any of that rings, rings true for you. It does. We also had similar coaching at the School for the Blind, in fact, about eye poking and rocking. But it does beg the question, what is a blindism and what is a legitimate alternative technique? Because... I remember we had a guy who was the chairman of the board of the Blindness Agency who came to the School for the Blind, which they ran back then. And he was walking around the school going, 
he was clicking his tongue, you know, doing the echolocation thing. And I thought to myself, that is so cool. He's obviously getting some really useful information about this. And then I realized I had been doing this without really being conscious that I had been doing it at different places and that it was echolocation that that allowed me as a little kid to do that crazy stuff with the horse at our backyard. So when we were walking around the school, I started doing that. I was like clicking and hearing the sound bouncing off the walls. And I'm thinking, dude, this is this is epic. And I got pinged by the teachers who told me to stop doing it, that it was a blindism. And I said, well, Mr. McKenzie, he's the chairman of the board and he's doing it. And they said, well, that may well well be the case for Mr. McKenzie, but don't do it here. I don't think it harmed me too much in terms of the fact that I still used echolocation when they weren't around. But you have to be careful about what's a blindism and what's an alternative technique. Clearly, rocking around and stuff is a blindism and it's not particularly sociable. I remember a friend of mine saying to one of the teachers who told him to stop rocking, well, it doesn't seem to hurt Stevie Wonder any. And <laughs> Super blind the guy. Did, yeah, the teacher didn't seem to have an answer for that. How did you meet uh, Amanda? I was doing a lot of music stuff. So I've got up to grade eight at the Royal Schools of Music, which is an English, as you can tell, organization. And they would send people out to look after the practical piano stuff that I was doing. But then we would also sit these theory of music exams. And due to a longstanding partnership with the School for the Blind, there was an arrangement with the kids at uh, and some of the staff at Pakuranga College, which is a high school in in Auckland where they would send some of their music students out to be an amanuensis. For those who don't know, Braille music is very different from print music. So if you're doing theory of music, you essentially have to dictate your answers in print music terms. And Amanda was one of those students one year, and my then-girlfriend met her, and apparently I did too, but I don't remember this at all. So... She didn't make an impression the first time. But then the Boston song, Amanda, came out. That's a great song. And my then-girlfriend said, oh, this song reminds me of that girl, Amanda, we met at the Theory of Music exam. And I said, I really don't know who you're talking about. Well, then the next year came along, 1987, and I definitely remember meeting Amanda then. It was like, I don't, I don't know what the difference was in a year, but I was bowled over by this girl. She was just really vivacious and smiley and she taught herself braille because she was somehow fascinated with braille and blind people and next thing i know i'm being invited to her 19th birthday party and and then of course you get the whole teenage angst thing because i'd only had two girlfriends before and both of them were blind so i was really worried about asking a sighted girl out or expressing my feelings for a sighted girl because this was when I was heading into a pretty bad phase of my life. And I, I kind of thought, well, what the hell would any pretty sighted girl want hanging out with a blind guy? Uh, what would she say to her parents, you know, bringing a blind guy home, all that kind of stuff. And I was just wrecked with agony. You know, I was off my food. <laughs> it, was just, it was just awful. And then... Finally, I decided, look, I just have to know. I have to know one way or the other. I remember giving her a call and I said, I think you're something really special and I think I'm falling in love with you and I'd like to get to know you better. And 
did this little spiel. I, I do tend to waffle, so I did this probably quite waffly spiel. I think I'm and falling in love with you is not really waffling. Well, you've got to say it like it is, dude. And uh, so then I paused and I said, so what do you think? <laughs> and she said, I think you're a real sweetie. And I said, yeah, but? And she goes, no, no buts. So that's how we got together, man. And we were together for 18 years and shared a lot of really good times and um, had four wonderful children. And that was it was the beginning of an amazing adventure. How long before the, the two of you got married? Um, well, we got together at the end of 1987 and we got married in 1990. We were living together quite quickly and we did this big overseas trip, big overseas trip. We hang out in the States for a while, went to Disney and did a few things. And then we saw lots of her relations in England. So that was pretty special because, of course, I took my radio. And the moment I got uh, onto American Terraforma, I got my transistor radio out at LA International Airport. And the very first song I heard on American radio was Bob Rivers singing the restroom, the restroom Jewel Says Gentleman. Um, <laughs> you remember this? Yeah. Oh, God, I remember it all right. I was just overwhelmed by all the American radio. We were very young. We were way too young. I was far too immature to um, be in a long-term relationship like that. Way too immature. We had a great relationship, and she's she's an awesome person. We're still very, very good friends. We've just been to each other's 50th birthday parties, even though we have now respective significant others. But I think I was also sort of fearful that, you know, this might be the only chance that I had to have a relationship with a sighted person. And in my brain at that stage, having a relationship with a sighted person was superior to having a relationship with a blind person. For reasons other than the logistical ones? Well, yes. Yes, I suppose it was a status thing. But, I mean, hell, the logistical things are pretty important. I remember... I really remember bringing Amanda over to meet my parents for the first time. And then we got in her car and we drove off somewhere like to have a meal or whatever. And as and she was driving this old 1973 Ford Escort thing. And I remember getting in that car and it had quite a loud motor and we sort of hooned across the drive. And I thought, yes. This is freedom, man. <laughs> so I decided to go with wheels. So, I mean, there was, there was a bit of that. But, I mean, we, we were madly in love. We, we loved each other very much, and we saw each other through some good and bad times. I mean, I have a sighted wife, so I'm not underplaying the, uh, the logistical things. Some of my best friends have sighted wives. Yes, it's amazing how that works. When Jonathan and I continue our conversation, he talks about his university career, some of the computer technology that he used in the early days, and his first forays into political activism in New Zealand. Those things and more on Episode 3 of In the Arena. I'm Glenn Gordon. Thanks for listening.